Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Rough Draft. I'm your host, Reza Aslan. On the pod today, our guest is the lovely and talented Bess Kalb. She is the author of a brand new book called Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. She calls it a ghost memoir. It's basically the story of her relationship with her grandmother, but told primarily from her grandmother's point of view, which is a really tricky thing to do, considering that her grandmother is dead but it actually works brilliantly. It's a beautiful, heartwarming, and funny book. And Bess herself is probably best known as a comedian. She got her start working for Jimmy Kimmel Live as one of the writers of that monologue that he gives every day. But it was the book that really drew us at Rough Draft towards her because she does something that is very difficult to do, and that is channel someone else's voice. All you writers out there know that among the many elements of the craft of writing, one of the most difficult to master is the issue of voice. It's tricky because, you know, voice is not just about capturing the way that someone talks, right? It's about revealing character through the way that someone talks, and doing that in a sustained way, the way that Bess does throughout this whole book, capturing the voice, the personality, the very character of her grandmother is an absolute literary feat, which has received all the accolades that it deserves. We're going to talk a lot about her relationship with her grandmother, her relationship with her Jewish fate, and also how she goes about writing, what her writing process is like, whether she's writing jokes for Jimmy Kimmel or writing a memoir from the perspective of a dead person. So without further ado, here is my conversation with author and comedian, Bess Kalb. First of all, congratulations on the book. It's really, really lovely and beautiful. Oh. It's this kind of gorgeous distillation of three generations of women um, within a family. You you talked about it. I, I love the way that you described it. You said that it was a ghost memoir. Um, yeah. Can you explain that to us? For those, for those of you unfamiliar with the book, it's basically, it's the story of your grandmother, but it's told in her voice. Um, and your grandmother is no longer with us. So, so what do what do you mean by this this go this new genre you have created called the ghost memoir? <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I I hopefully have not created a new genre, but I, it was a sort of tough sell. Um, this is not a memoir, and it's not a novel. This is not an autobiography either. It's my grandmother's story in her own words from beyond the grave, but I'm writing it. So uh, my editor called it literary ventriloquism, which I can barely say out loud. <laughs> so I think that's overshooting. What it is, really what it is, is it's it's my beloved grandma kvetching at you through me. Um, and that's yeah. that's the genre. Um, well, she's, a, she, 
she's such an incredible character and there's so many ways to have written about her. Why do it in this way? Why why sort of adopt her voice and and write it as a as an autobiography, you know, from beyond the grave? <laughs> you know, if you've if, for people who who met her in her life and for readers who feel like they've met her now, there's really no other way to tell her story than in her own words. Uh, this book was me letting her have the last word that she never mm. got. Um and uh, you know, as as any funny, like in recounting a funny person's story, you can't help but affect their tone, you know, pick up their mannerisms. I felt like the the best way and only way to do justice to the way my grandma told stories was to just sort of do her as a character. Um, and it was a great cheat. I'm a fraud. I'm not really a writer. I just am doing a character. Um, it was easy for did me. You, yeah. Were there any books that influenced you when you did this? I mean, where did this idea even come from? I mean, did you just think to yourself, and I, and I want to know like how the, the process whereby you actually pitched this to, to a publisher where you're like, I'm going to write, you know, a, a memoir, but from the perspective of my, you know, deceased grandmother. Yeah. Um, you know, there are many contemporary novels that I think have done great experiments in voice. I mean, chief among, I feel like Room was a way to mm -hmm. handle um, the idea of a, of a narrator whose voice is so central to the plot around him. Um, Room, of course, was told in, in the voice of a, a five-year-old child. Um, there are books like Visit from the Goon Squad, where you're you know, ping-ponging back and forth between different voices and different characters mm -hmm. and taking along, you know, creating a, a sense of place and time and, and people through voices. Um, but no, there wasn't really an example of something like this. And my literary agent and the various publishers who, who you know, were presented with this um, this treatment and this um, proposal were excited that there there hasn't been something like this. There hasn't been a ghost memoir. Um, <laughs> I mean, the idea of having to put like a thing underneath the title um, uh -huh. that says either a novel or a memoir was uh -huh. a series of emails with my incredible editor <laughs> and uh, her incredible assistant. Um, it took us like two weeks to nail down a true as told to me story. Right, um, right. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk actually a lot about um, the use of voice um, in this book in a moment. But do us a favor, walk us through the the process of um, delving into your family's history for this book. Like, were there things about your family? You guys seem, you know, I mean, you and your grandmother are obviously very, very close. But I wonder if there were things that, that either surprised you or things that you didn't know about your family or your grandmother. Um, and I also want to know... Um, how your family responded to the book. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot there. And again, there's sort of imagine. the, yeah, there's the, how my family has responded to my face and how they're all, you know, quietly talking about this amongst themselves, <laughs> right. which exactly. historically is always very different. They're Behind like, oh my back. God, we love uh -huh. it. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you for writing this. And they're like, Jesus <laughs> Christ, did anyone think about asking us? Um, but the, uh, no, I love my family very much. They've been very, very supportive. To answer the, the, the later question first. Um, they've been very supportive. My grandfather, who is sort of only because it was successful. Case. If that's it right, weren't successful, right. then right. they'd be <laughs> then they would let you know. But it's successful, so they're gonna let Honestly, it go. Anyway, it go was ahead. it was their primary concern. I was like, do you want to read it? Do you want to? I mean, this is the woman that we all love. You're not mentioned in it. This is really just a matrilineal story of the women and our family. But if you'd like, and they were like, okay, so what's the who's what's the marketing budget? What are we like? Are we gonna be on Oprah. <laughs> But the, uh, yeah, the process of writing this was full of surprises. I feel like mm. 
um, I, I felt sort of like an investigative journalist into my own um, maternal heritage, um, into my mom and my grandma. And I feel like if there is ever a therapist who wanted to write a book on how to solve all of your issues with your mom and the women that you come from, you should write in their voice. Um, it was a, I mean, it was, it really was sort of a surprising exercise in empathy and mm-hmm. um, and just the the mere idea of having to process information through my grandmother's character made me forgive her for a lot of her tougher moments and mm-hmm. understand where she was coming from for a lot of the struggles that are, are in the book. For, for those of you who have read it, you know that the, the general gist is my grandma was, was not a good mother and was a incredible grandmother. And so it examines the disconnect about love skipping a generation and sort of having this do-over with your 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 granddaughter. Um, yeah. And so I was surprised by how much my, you know, how, how much my empathy exploded for my mom, my grandma. And then just in, in sort of the journalistic enterprise of fact-checking a life um, to call my grandpa, to call um, Georgie and Leo's survivors, um, you know, to, to my, my cousin Jeannie, uh, to talk to my mom constantly about this was just filling sort of reams of, of notebooks and endless hours of recording uh, of like arcane family history. Mm-hmm. I, I felt like I was doing a sort of uh, ancestry.com for no one um, <laughs> and, um, and then had to figure out what what would be a compelling read. And and that's that's this, hopefully. It is wonderful. It's funny, you, you brought this up kind of casually um, when you were talking about the fact that your grandmother did not have a close relationship with your mother. She admits it. She admits as much. You know, there's, yeah. I think there's this really wonderful point where um, she apologizes to you for something and then just admits she's never apologized to her own daughter before. And yeah. I may be wrong about this, but as I read the book, I also notice that, you know, your mother is also at least wasn't that close to you and is, um, you know, very doting on your child now. Yeah. Maybe it's because I finally, I have three sons and then I finally got a daughter. And so maybe this is at the top of my mind right now. What is the deal with moms and daughters? What is, what is that about? You know, I, I can only <laughs> describe it. I don't have the answer. If I had the answer, then I would be talking to you from my castle in, you know, Lake Como. But, um, but the, um, but the, from, from, from my personal experience, when I found out that I was having a boy, um, I remember just the wave of relief, um, <laughs> and my OB ended up saying something like, right. "Yeah, I can." Uh, the look on your face right now, I see a lot um, from women who had maybe tough relationships with their mother. By the way, my mother is wonderful, and she and I have an incredibly close relationship sure. now. Yeah, um, it, she's she's watching my kid. We're co-quarantining in a pod now together. But the uh, the the way that I felt when I found out I was pregnant with my son, I think meant that I was sort of spared the agony that I inflicted on my mom, that this was by no, it was by no means a judgment on my mother. It was all about just the the terror um, and the force of evil that is a 14-year-old girl. <laughs> you know, the, the things the things that came out of my mouth, uh, you know, probably ruined my mom and my life forever. Um, just, just like in a casual go getting ready for school conversation. Um, and... Um, and I also, I was like a good kid. So God help. Um, yeah. I, I think, but, um, 
Yeah, I think But there was also a disconnect between your grandmother and her mother. Like, that story is really told. The story of your great-grandmother is remarkable of fleeing Russia and coming to the United States at 14 by herself uh, and somehow yeah. she, she there's this, she she knows the name of one Jew in yeah, America she married him, and it's like you know which is the most find, Jewish thing yeah, just find <laughs> yeah. this one Jew that's in America and you'll be fine and she did and next thing you know totally I yeah. feel like find the Jew is a for a Jewish girl is a good directive. Like that's a you know it'll get you through yeah. your you know <laughs> your door. I'm, I'm Muslim. I'm Muslim. If I say the phrase find the Jew, <laughs> it's um, awkward. I guess totally. That's what I'm trying to say. No, it's anyway. not. It's fine. The um, the um, yeah the. I will say the way that I think the suffering of the women who came before us defines our experience is something that I was really interested in and something that I was just sort of imbued in and a byproduct of. Um, And so in sort of figuring out why relationships between mothers and daughters are tough, I was able to understand, well, there's actually four generations that you have to look at. You have to see Mm -hmm. why the mother is so tough. What was she forged in? And then why was that woman the way she was? You know, what was the crucible that made her sort of this steely, tough woman? And I think as uh, this is an immigrant story, this is the story of of women who came from nothing, who came truly with nothing, um, alone from uh, fleeing religious persecution. And I think there's sort of a toughness that gets built in. That's not sort of this sort of Susie cream cheese, easy Norman Rockwell existence when you're the byproduct of that. There's going to be a woman who suffered and is in many ways afraid to love because she's understood loss so um, intimately. There's this line, there's this line that your grandmother has when she's complaining about your mother. And the way that she puts it is that she says that your mother is ungrateful, right? That that's, that's the the key thing. The ungrateful ever every ungrateful at every turn threatening to throw it all away everything that your you know your grandmother gave her and i love this line here she says it wasn't her politics i opposed it was her hubris and i think that there's something as an immigrant you know raising very well-off children um who you know want for nothing um it that that line hit me and i was like yeah i get it it's the it's the hubris that kind of creates that disconnect. And it made me wonder, you know, now that you're a parent yourself, like, do you ever wonder what is it that we as children, as we get older, what do we owe our parents? Yeah. I mean, I, my, I'm going to live in my son's pool house, for instance. Uh, that's what he owes me. I'm going to grow old in his backyard. Um, the uh, yeah, just sort of walking around in a caftan, being like, "We're out of melon." Um, that's so. That's literally what he owes me. Um, he's ten months old, uh, but the uh, um, yeah, no pressure at all. Um, but um, I, you know, what do they owe us? I, I think, I think there is something so true ab- about what you said that the idea that. God, I've I've provided this for you. Please don't squander it. Is mm. um is 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 entirely for their benefit. You know, I I like to think that everything I'm doing is for him, and everything that I, you know, even just like staying healthy and um, taking the various precautions that we take in this crazy, you know, this 
time that we're, we're in right now um, is, is for my child. And so I, I hope that he's able to um, – I hope he's able to, like, accept the sacrifices that I've made and the work that I've done and feel appropriately guilty enough to – and I'll, it'll right. come back to the, like, glib joke at the beginning to put me up in his, you know, cool house. <laughs> <laughs> you, know. you know, it's funny. You, you, you were talking about <clears throat> your grandmother as a character, and she's, she comes across – so vividly um and i think for a lot of people especially myself there's something extraordinarily familiar about her character i had i did mention to you earlier when we were chatting that i mean i hear my persian mom when i when i listen to the to your grandmother's voice um and there's very little very little separating persian moms from jewish grandmothers i mean they're basically the same person um, and uh, and also the, I think the thing that I that I really uh, attached myself to was the fact that both your grandmother and my mother are prominent know-it-alls right? <laughs> just you know what I mean like just yeah. quintessential know-it-alls yeah so I, th I thought it would be fun as we as we continue what I wanted to do is let's compare let's compare stories all right let's let's do let's let's you know complain about our our parents slash grandparents. Um, let's compare stories. Let's share the the best advice uh, that we ever got, or nudge, nudge, as right. your as your grandma would say, the best nudge. Yeah, Just the nudge. Sephardic pronunciation is nudge, Ashkenazi nudge. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, the best advice, the best criticism, and uh, the best guilt trip. Okay, ready? Do you want to go yeah. first? You start. Should I go? I'll start first. Okay, I'll start. Sure, sure. The yeah. best, the best advice. Okay, the best advice that I ever got my mother. Um, I went to um, Harvard Divinity School uh, in order to, you know, become a, a scholar of religions, <clears throat> which is something my mom was never all that. You know, I'm an immigrant. Like you can be a doctor, you can be an engineer, and if you're just not smart, then you can be a lawyer. That's it. Yeah, you, but you, isn't there on the you, Harvard, the Harvard pass? Har you know, so the, so that's, yeah. I thought yeah. this is the best yeah. part as I thought, well, okay. I mean, I, so I get the Harvard pass. So a week, a week into um, school, she calls me on the phone and she goes, Reza Jun, I, uh, I just found out that across the street from you is the law school. <laughs> Why don't you just go there? Like, no. that's what it is. Just like, oh, you just cross the street. You just cross the street and you that's, walk into. So, so that's you know that's what? that's my 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 mother's best nudge. Okay, that's amazing. Mine was going to be different, but my uh, you know my grandmother has something. My mom, when I moved to LA and started writing for Kimmel, um, my mom was nudging me back across the country to move to New York. Still hasn't happened, and she very casually on the phone with me once said. Oh, what is that show? Um, it's on on Sat Saturday Night Live. Why don't you just write for them? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> it's also at night. Yeah, I think I tweeted it. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> my mom right, has great okay. career advice. Yeah. All right, best criticism. Best criticism. Um, I had uh, I bought my first house. It's very proud of myself. Bought it myself with my own money. You know, mm -hmm. it was like, you know, we my family lived in apartments until like I graduated from high school, basically. Um, and, uh, and I, and my, I brought my mom to see my brand new house and, you know, she took a tour of the entire thing, never said a word, just quietly, like looking from room to room, went upstairs, went downstairs, went to the downstairs, um, bathroom. And, 
I should mention the downstairs bathroom, the toilet paper dispenser um, was was like loose on the on the wall. And mm. she came upstairs and I said, <clears throat> well, mom, I mean, what do you think? Like, what do you think of of my house, the, my first house? And she said, you bought a house with a broken toilet dispenser? Oh, God. <laughs> Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, that's truly, yeah, no, I mean, the, the therapy for that alone, I mean, like, that's, that's, that's crazy. All right. Best criticism. Best criticism. Best criticism. So my grandma was full of my, my grandma and I, I answered for my mom for the best nudge. My grandma was all nudges and criticism. My grandma's, my grandma's nudge was similar about moving to New York, by the way. So my mom's covers it. But, um, for criticism, I feel like my grandma, was my biggest cheerleader. She was, you know, she was, which is such a cliche, but she truly, I, I, there were soccer games where she was shrieking at the other girls, uh, you know, get away from her, get away from, she has sports induced <laughs> asthma. Uh, and so, you know, like she literally that was made my you so popular. I know. I was like, uh, you know, I guess, I guess softball for me. <laughs> um, but, um, she was right. Um, uh, and, um, but her, her best criticism was, always about not living up to um, her, like her perfect standards. And so I remember I was trying on a dress with her. A lot of the book takes place in dressing rooms. and, she loved Bloomingdale's. Uh, she Bloomingdale's is a character in this book. <laughs> After she died, I literally I just walked through Bloomingdale's and just like took in the smells just the, until my <laughs> eyes watered. Um, not a place I feel comfortable, but you know that was her. That's that's her shrine. And um, she told me. And I said, what do you think of this? And sort of like did did the girl thing where I turned, I turned to like my most flattering angle. Um, and she goes, oh, honey, if you don't want to immediately walk or if you have to ask me, if you don't want to immediately walk around and show everybody in the store and ask that question, just take it off. <laughs> I live by it. I live by it. <laughs> all right. The best, best guilt trip. Best guilt trip. Um, most of the guilt trips all had to do with food with my mom. Um, so the best guilt trip was once I, I came home to visit after, you know, I'd gone to, to college and um, <clears throat> and I landed at the airport and uh, I got into the, the rental car and I was really hungry. So on the way home, I stopped at McDonald's. You know where this is going. Uh, uh, God so, help you, yeah. yeah, God help me. Uh, I, and then when I got home, she's like, OK, I, I made I made dinner, you know, Persian food. You know, it's like 50 rices and kebabs Delicious. and all this stuff. And I said, oh, um, oh, mom, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not really hungry i i ate mcdonald's on on the way here and she said mcdonald's okay okay you eat all the mcdonald's you want i just go die i go die and then you eat mcdonald's all day okay that's fine i mean it so that's that's fine about it. i should i should mention she would meant she would mention suicide like you know of course or anything yeah so. yeah holding that but, over you but that, oh but that my one God. was a good one. That's that's um <laughs> wow. You know, that'll 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 um you know kill your appetite right there. Uh, yeah, um, that's, I think right. that's the last time I went to McDonald's, honestly. Whew, yeah, no, that, that's the end of that. Um yeah. Right, best guilt trip. Well, my grandma's this entire book is a guilt trip. My my grandma <laughs> that's true. This is a guilt trip. Um the so my my mom was in the second year of her medical residency when I was born, and she was one of the only women in her program at um, at Columbia um, in the psychiatry program. Uh, and uh, so there was no such thing as maternity leave. She went back to work after, I think, two weeks and used vacation days for that. And so my grandma 
stepped in. And my grandma, the reason that we're so close, the reason, you know, I sort of owed her this book is, is she really raised me. Um, and uh, my dad was in a, a, a different program for a different specialty, but he was also in, in his medical residency. And so I was a baby alone. They really didn't time it well. Um, <laughs> and so my grandma would leave me these voicemails and there are several of them throughout the book, but she would say, just super casually, she would call to say, do you know what I did when you were born? And that's how it would begin. And she would go, you know, I wasn't an old lady. I, was in, I wasn't a young woman. I was an old lady. I was in my 60s. And I would get on a plane from Palm Beach and I would fly up on a Tuesday and sit in their terrible apartment by the hospital and I would hold you and I would talk to you and we would watch Miami Vice on TV and I'd tell you about the people on the plane. And then I would get back on the plane on a Thursday and I would go back to Florida and then I would do the same thing the next week. And so you should move back to New York by the end of the year. <laughs> And that was just her MO. She would just leave wow. me these voicemails with a full yeah. story about what a nightmare it was that I existed. <laughs> and then just she was she was it was like it was like a tennis match. And then she would just sort of slam in the like, you should be engaged by this time next summer. Right. Move back to New York end of the year. She was she was <laughs> very good at uh, just like surgical with her guilt. So um, I had mentioned this earlier. You're now a parent yourself. Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, have your expectations I mean, this is a stupid question because the answer is obviously yes, but maybe I should say how. How yeah. have your expectations um, about motherhood changed now that you are a mother? You have a 10-month-old, so it's still you're still in that stage where you're just trying to hold on for dear life. I get that. <laughs> yeah. But but you know, at night when the baby's down and you know you've had a couple of cocktails and you're starting yeah. to think back over on your life, <laughs> I wonder. Um, it's it's got it's got to have a major impact on the way that you thought about your mom and your and your grandmother. How how has that oh, yeah. sort of changed the way you saw them? I mean, it was it was profound. I, I you know I, I knew it, I knew it would, um, but I didn't know to what degree. And I was in the hospital after my son was born, and he shivered, and. I just looked at him and the flood of my ancestors needing the baby to be warm just sort of came <laughs> like a Niagara Falls through my spine. And I remember just like, you know, postpartum, I could barely move, but suddenly I was over his bassinet and I was like, by the way, this was the end of August. I was like tying blankets around him, like a hat, like getting his hat on. And I just needed the baby to be warm. And my husband looked at me and I looked at him, you know, he sort of looked up bleary eyed from his cot. And I was like, I know I'm my mother. <laughs> And it was it was such a crystalline moment of Judaism, of of feeling empathy. And, and I think what that sort of illustrated to me was, oh my God, I get the anxiety. I get I get how every time I would cough on the phone with my grandma, she would go, What's wrong? What is that? What are you doing? <laughs> you know? um, because, you know, my son sniffles and I'm like, Well, we have to he actually he has been sick recently, but you know, the um but you know, if it, when he wasn't, and by the way, he's fine now. Thank God. But um, the, uh, you know, at the slightest sniffle, I get the like, we have to call urgent care. We have to call the pediatrician. I get that. And <laughs> I forgive my mother for her anxiety sins and I will pass them on to him <laughs> shortly. Hey there, everyone. It's Reza. I'm sorry for the interruption. I just wanted to pop in and say that if you're enjoying this episode, well, then you're in luck, my friends, because Rough Draft is also a TV show. And you can watch it all right now, along with topics, other original series and exclusive programming from around the world. 
You can check it out for free on the Apple TV app, which is already on your favorite devices. With Apple TV, you can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can even share your subscription with up to six family members with family sharing, which is what I do because I have a gigantic family. Go to apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. That's apple.co slash topic. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's talk about craft for a minute. Um, We actually kind of touched on this a little bit earlier in our conversation about um, capturing your grandmother's voice. Voice, of course, is one of the trickier elements of the craft of writing. I think for a lot of people, they think of voice as just about being about capturing, you know, phrases or, or rhythms of speech, that it's about, you know, proper syntax and diction and all of those things but voice is actually as a as a narrative device far more complicated than that because the the chief function of voice in writing is to reveal character right yeah. you yeah. you write in a voice you give a character a voice primarily because you want to say something about them. You want to um, express their emotions. You want to express their qualities, their subtleties. It's a very, very hard thing to master. And even when you do master it, it's very hard to sustain. And I think truly the, the sort of the real magic of this book is that from you know page two or so, when you start to kind of get into what we're about to read here, um, you capture your grandmother's voice and you sustain it, right? It's you you really get to know who this person is a- as a character um, based on simply the way that she talks. Um, tell us a little bit about what it was like trying to capture her voice. What did you, how did you do it? Um, Did you, was it just a matter of, you know, listening to a lot of her voicemails? I know you had like banks of voicemails that you've you've collected. Um, Tell us about the the complexities of what it was like to capture your grandmother's voice and to reveal her character through it. Yeah, um, sure. Well, well, thank you for, for, for saying I did it successfully. Um, That's, 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 really wonder it's very surreal to release a book into a pandemic because i i have not um you know met a, many readers so to to even hear that reflection is and especially from you my god it's um it's that's i'm clamped so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> good night really, everybody yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you got a little yiddish out of her we're out of here <laughs> um, but um I will say, you know, I, I, I read something recently that there was a um, algorithm that read 10,000 hours of Shakespeare and then was able to auto-generate 
a full, you know, sonnet and and write yeah. in write, write an ambi iambic pentameter and write in, in Shakespearean verse. And I feel like I am that algorithm for Bobby Bell. Um, <laughs> I have 10,000 hours of her in me. And so if you're like, what would she think about the flamingo lawn ornament on your neighbor's lawn? I could do that. I, you know, it it's just like, turns on. Totally. It's just like I I am I am but like a series I am like a binary, you know, regurgitation machine for my grandma. Um and she did that totally on purpose. I think the reason for the sort of the tomes of of voicemails, the reason for the yeah, the the megabytes of information I have on my phone uh, um and the reason for the hours and hours of stories, you know, repeating the same story ad nauseum was so that I would have it in me so that, you know, even if it wasn't intentional, specifically with this directive of write a book, it was, I need to live on in my granddaughter. I'm going to tell her my stories in order to live, um, you know, to borrow a, a quote. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I really do see um, this exercise in voice as me sort of doing my grandma's lifelong bidding. You know, she, she, I, I feel like the scribe following her as she told her stories and that's what this <laughs> book totally is. Um, and I will also say to your point about voice that, um, I write in characters. That's, that's what I do by trade. That's what I, that's what I did at, sure. at Kimmel. Um, that's what I do when I write for other, when I write speeches or for other people, um, it's easier for me to write if I'm writing in the voice of someone else. Um, Interesting, right? Of course. Yeah. I mean, like for years, you got paid to put words in Jimmy Kimmel's mouth, so you must have already with many been other sort of many other writers <laughs> and, and many other writers, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. The Academy, yeah. the awards, and work, no, no, I'm know, saying you, many other. I, I wasn't. Just, oh no, no, I'm saying uh, many other writers wrote for for Jimmy. It's not like I was writing for his. It was, with the oh, team. I thought it was just you. <laughs> no, I thought no, it was no. Like yeah, you no, no, I, with your hand I, I, in Jimmy's butt. No, just no, and also by the way, Jimmy. Wrote, no, no, I feel very uncomfortable about about Oh no, oh no, about that I no about about that I feel very comfortable. Um, the that's the type of relationship that anyone should have with their boss but i but i feel sure. uncomfortable taking credit what i actually feel uncomfortable with is taking credit for anybody else's voice because that is entirely his own but it was my right, job but, to but I, to fit the mold totally that's totally. what i was gonna say yeah totally like, to, yeah to, to, to write in the voice know, of the show know, yeah 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 to know his yeah. rhythms to know totally. his affectation and yeah. then to do that it must have in some way primed you for totally being able to capture your your grandmother's voice. Yes, as counterintuitive as it is, I honestly do feel like writing for a man in late night, um, like one-off jokes, absolutely was the training I needed to write a novel, essentially, to write a book in the voice of a 90-year-old dead woman who I loved. Yeah. Um, and the, the reason for that is, A, it taught me how to write all the time, to write every day with a gun to your head. To, you have to fill up the page. There's a show every night. You can't not have anything to write that day. Right. Like you, you just have to do it. Um, you know, blinking cursor be damned. Like that page has to be full. Your joke deadline is at 9 a.m. You have to get your material in. People are relying on you. People's jobs are relying on you. Um, your job is relying on you. Um, and uh, and the other well, side there's of nothing, that, yeah. I'm just thinking about like the how <laughs> – 
how unfunny it is to have to like write jokes on deadline. It's totally. Like, Be funny now. <laughs> that's that's yeah, with like like shooting at your feet. <laughs> totally. That that and I, you know, that's what I spent the better part of a decade doing, but it was amazing training because you kind of learn how to facilitate a joke and you learn how to sort of put news through a Rube Goldberg machine and like have a take and have it in like a sort of plug and play joke-ish format and then like occasionally there'll be like one there's nothing less funny than talking about joke writing but this is all to say it was incredible mechanical training for writing um just the act of writing and the act of writing funny jokes ended up making me really careful with word choice even even though i would love to say this was sort of a freewheeling channeling of my grandma's voice there was a lot of editing that went into this Mm -hmm. there was a lot Mm -hmm. of like how does this sentence end in a way that's going to make the reader laugh how does this sentence end in a way that's going to make the reader cry and to do that you it, it did get um it you know there were arguments with not arguments but i was sort of like if it's okay argument for me is like can i leave that m dash in i know it's not grammatically correct but there has to be a pause and they're like whatever we authors um, <laughs> but yeah there, there there was such precision to figuring out how to transpose a person into prose and yeah um I'm really grateful for my comedy writing job for giving me the tools to do that. Well, what what do you think was the most difficult part of channeling her voice, you know, getting it right? Yeah. yeah, I think the most difficult part was the last part of the book where she was not writing about her life anymore. She was writing about my life after she died. And that felt like, A, it was like, what a lot of nerve to write that. Um, And I better do it right if I'm going to do that. Um, And so I was no longer – that's sort of like when the training wheels were off. I no longer had her stories to retell. I had – you know, it was the sort of abyss that I had to use her voice to describe. And it was really hard as a writer, uh, but more so as a granddaughter, um, that writing this – you know, I'm talking about her a little bit in the abstract. We're talking about the character of Bobby, but this is a woman who – you know, raised me and I love and miss. And so writing, writing that was really the most painful um, part of the, of the entire process. And there were times when I thought, I can't do this. This book is just going to end in the middle of a chapter because to go on is, is, is really painful. I think I ended up being able to put my emotions aside as a granddaughter and just sort of lean into the character and uncover the the truth in in her perspective and what she would see. And um, as a result, I, I, I find that I was able to hopefully honor her um, and come to terms with her death in 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 fifty pages yeah. or so at the end. The end that you're talking about, <clears throat> um, your grandmother Bobby starts to, to speak from beyond the grave. Actually, throughout the book, she regularly speaks from beyond the grave. But at the end, um, when she's passed in the narrative, she's speaking from beyond the grave. And I'll just read this last section because I think it's just beautiful. This is Bobby, your grandmother, speaking. What have I always told you, Bessie? What have I always said? You're my angel. I am you. I'm the bones in your body and the blood that fills you up and the meat around your legs. I'm the softness of your cheeks and the way they freckle in the summer. And I'm the streaks of rust in your hair. And I'm the nose under your nose and the eyes that narrow with fire and roll backward and delight at all the same things. I'm your style. I'm your laugh. 
I'm the rage in your heart that I'm not here. You're the body I left behind. I made sure of that. From the moment I met you, I never stopped telling you my stories because nobody will write them but you. It's a beautiful moment there. Tell, talk about that, that delicate balance, right? Between um, your grandmother's voice and your voice, right? Your voice is in here. It's not like you, you disappear. You come in, you speak for yourself quite often. Um, how, do you, how do you maintain that balance? You know, I, I, it was a relief to be the straight woman. You know, I, <laughs> right. I, I sort of, that's right. sort that's of, right. you know, I, I, I let her do the talking and, and in the conversations where I, where I am present, I'm a character, I insert myself, I'm just reacting to her. Um, and that's sort of how I felt writing her, that there were so many moments where, you know, I start to sound crazy, but I would write a line in her voice and then I would laugh. Um, and my husband will tell you I am always the person who laughs hardest at my own jokes. Uh, but uh, it's very becoming. It's very cool. Um, and uh, it's, you know, normal. But the um, but it was fun to sort of have her shine and, and allow her voice and her comedy. I, I think I was able to be funnier than I am by being funny through her. Um, she, I think she is funnier than I am. You know, she was able to really level a room with just like the arch of an eyebrow. You know, we've, you've said on intentionally funny, totally, totally. But there were definitely times <laughs> where she was like, oh, Evelyn would go to the opening of an envelope. And it's like, you know, there were definitely like, like crazy, crazy um, she could have basically been like a, a road comic for for her for all her wit. And so I think having like narrative intrusion of the author was something that I tried to have a light touch with. I tried to allow myself to let her shine and just sort of react almost as a surrogate for the reader or audience um, to to what she said. Like there there were times in the text where, and there's a lot of dialogue in this book. It's a quick read. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of white space. <laughs> no, a lot of photographs, worry. which I A lot of photo pictures, which is nice. Pictures. You know, it's a relief. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you don't have to picture the characters. They, here they are. You know, I always like that <laughs> growing up. So, um, do my, so does my Exactly. So does my 10-month-old. Uh, especially if there's a fuzzy part. <laughs> ah, next book, next book, it'll be a, you know, there'll be a bunny with a tummy. But um, <laughs> the, um, the, I, I will say that, you know, I, I did, I did feel like I was trying not to get too writerly. I was trying not to get too, you know, precious. I'm, I'm so, I, I'm a self-editing per, you know, self-doubting writer. I always would, um, you know, I, I, I sort of triple judge my own writing. And so I tried to pare myself down as much as possible in this book and really let mm. her voice and her her perspective and her turns of phrase shine. And in the moment that that you read, it was definitely a place where I, I was able to sort of put put both of our um, sort of perspectives together. Um, and and I I think that the payoff there is you get her character, but you know, there, there, there was a writer doing it. Um, and you know, I think that's, I think that's why friends have called and, uh, and said that my book made them very upset. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I, I think I 
my my challenge in this book, my job was was really just letting her shine and and letting her mm-hmm. voice carry the narrative. There are a lot of <clears throat> wonderful themes in the book. Um, we talked about sort of the relationship between mothers and daughters and grandmothers and daughters and all of that stuff. Um, but fundamentally, I would say the central theme of the book is grief. You know, yeah. this really is a book about grieving. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I say this to my students all the time. I have, a, I have a lot of students who want to write about grief, want to write about terrible things that have happened to them or great losses that they have had or, you know, um, stories about losing a loved one, things like that. And I try to explain to them that there really is nothing harder than writing about grief. It is unquestionably the most difficult topic to write about because there is a fundamental problem with empathy, which is that as terrible as the situation is for you, as raw as the emotions are for you, as objectively awful as what you are describing may be, it doesn't matter because nobody cares. Totally. Nobody cares about what's happening with you. Uh, Nobody cares about your experience. I mean, this is the problem right now when we talk about the tens of thousands of people that have died, you know, as a result of COVID, it's impossible to feel bad about hundreds of thousands of dead people, but it's very easy to feel bad about one dead person. That's right. The, the, the problem is that so much of writing about grief relies on sympathy and not empathy. Yeah. Right. Sympathy, as I always try to remind people, is the death of literature. If your reader feels bad for you, you have failed. Yeah. That's not a good thing. You don't want your reader to feel bad for you. You want your reader to to empathize with you. Um, Doing it, obviously, in her voice, I think, is, is very clever in that regard. But I wonder if, as you were writing about writing this book and simultaneously dealing with your own very real, very raw, you know, emotions and, and grief about this. Were, was it in the top of your mind about the difficulty of trying to get other people to feel about your grandmother the way that you felt about her? And how did you do that? What 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 tricks did you use in order to to drag the reader along? Yes, my my tricks. Um, well, yes. Reza, I am a witch, and so <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> so yeah, there are a couple newts. You know, the cauldron was at a specific temperature. Um, the uh, the I mean, there you're you're a hundred percent right on about it, and it was I was it was a huge concern, and again the the self doubt, the amount of self doubt versus writing that this book represents is sort of you know the the scale is is very much tipped in, in mm-hmm. uh, on the side of 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 questioning the merit of this enterprise altogether. Um, even my proposal letter to my literary agent Aaron Malone, who's who's so wonderful and really the first reader of this book and and such a brilliant reader, um, I I wrote an apology. I was like, look, mm. this is a self. In- I said the word self indulgent grief exercise. You know, ninety year old woman dies. What a you know, like she lived a yeah. great life, 
and it was very much her time. You know, like this is this is not a tragedy by any means. In fact, this is the most normal thing to happen since birth. You know, this is just a natural process occurred. And here's 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 my, you know, sort of siren song about it. You know, here's here's my wailing, you know, screed. Mm-hmm. But um but I and I wrote this apology and she wrote back and I, I sent her what is now the first 40 pages of the book and she said this is not that. Everybody needs to read this. Um I think that there is something in especially American culture that makes talking about death really difficult and sort of couched in cliche and um, platitudes and and these sort of comfort words that sanitize the entire experience. And I found after my grandma died, I was almost apologetic for feeling sad. Um, Mm. You know, my grandma died is almost sounds like an excuse to get out of writing a paper in college. It's not a, you know, it's like, (laughs) right. It's like, it's not right. It's not a, there's nothing that this is not, this is not like a a cataclysm. There won't, you know, there, well, now there will be, but there wouldn't be a movie centered on, you know, there's a, there's nothing dramatic about it at all. And so I think what I had to do was just be really frank about death and be, be really forthright and really upfront and start it with just how would a woman feel getting covered by dirt by her whole family? Just be very hmm. matter of fact about it. And the book begins, it's a terrible thing to be dead. And it doesn't begin, it's a terrible thing to lose a grandmother. Even lose yes. a grandmother is a cliche. It's a terrible thing to be dead. And so writing in the sort of, I guess, as I lay dying-ish, you know, to, to write from the mm. perspective of, you know, again, I hate, this is not as I lay dying. But um, I just want to be very clear. Did you just uh, compare yourself to yeah, Faulkner? Yeah. <laughs> no. Who I the don't. hell do you think you exactly. are? I don't. Again, no, this is truly my nightmare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's that there was a book in Madeline. She lost a grandma. So maybe it's like that. <laughs> or there was a Berenstein Bears about it. Um, it's closer to that. So, <laughs> um, but I think telling it from the perspective of the deceased helps get around the sort of pity yeah. idea of That's why do I exactly feel bad it? for you? And I, I That's think, exactly. yeah, yeah. Ho- hopefully it succeeded. And um, again, wonder, a lot of chutzpah. I wonder, could you have, do you think that you, you could have written this book while your grandmother was alive? You know, there were parts that I kind of did write. Well, the, I would write down conversations after I had mm-hmm. them with her. I even had, I, I would, I had a habit of, even sometimes with like my writing partners, if my grandma called, I would be like, should I? And they'd be like, speaker. So I would put her on speakerphone because she was just so unbelievable. Um, like no one could believe that she was saying these things. Um, and like afterward, like I would get off the phone and Charlie would come and I would be like, I'm sorry, I have to I have to write down nobody wants to come home to salmon. Like there there were lines that are in the book that Sure words. Totally. Ne- I, I say right? this to my wife all the time. I don't <laughs> want to come home, come to, home salmon. to salmon. Please. Right, right. You know, it's a nightmare. And so she I mean, she just had sort of she had line after line and also she was just so right all the time and, and her timing was so great. And I I had a lot of material to work with while she was mm. alive, fortunately. Um and the, I, but I don't think that this book at all would have been what it ended up being um, if she were alive. This is very much a book about her being gone. It's almost mm-hmm. like I buried her in this book. You know, this is yeah. this is this is what I have left of her. Um, and I 
you know, it makes me sad because it is, it is a test. I'm like holding it, but it is a testament to her life, but it is also proof of her death. Um, you know, the book existing in my house is a reminder that she's gone. It's mixed. What do you miss most about her? Mm. I know it's a tough question, but. No, it's a, it's a, I get it's to, a, I get to ask. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um, damn it. Uh, fine, <laughs> I, uh, don't make me look inward. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> Cry. Cry. <laughs> God damn it. It's <laughs> okay. <laughs> the sleep deprivation I have, honestly. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the uh, it's it's such a banal thing. It's not at all. I I, I just miss her. Be, it's I. It's not a specific thing at all. It's just her being there, being able to pick up my phone and hear hello, just in her voice. I just miss the reassurance of her existence, and it is such mm. a, it is such a general thing to miss. But it is the thing I miss most that. Even go knowing that I'm able to call her, knowing that we're able to sort of breathe into the our respective phones at each other, is what I miss most. Because I feel like that covers, and it's sort of a cheat answer, but it does cover all of the times when I need her most. Like, you know, my my son, you know, isn't actually pulling himself up at the like age the book says he's supposed to pull himself up. You know, did what did like did my mom what not? Do I do? I mean, yeah, right, yeah. Or like, should I like? Am I picking him up too much? Is it because I'm over momming him? Is it you know? Like, there's mm-hmm. so many things that I just want her to be like. You're doing everything right. You throw out that book. That book is not for geniuses like our like our <laughs> baby. You know, <laughs> um, and fortunately, you know, I have enough of her in me to sort of turn my head back on straight but I yeah I just I miss that the potential energy of her on the other side of the phone so we end every episode of rough draft with what we call the five questions five rapid fire questions are you ready for these I'm ready for these really really hard your your grandma's watching okay okay yeah she is (laughs) question number one what is your favorite book slouching toward Bethlehem Ooh, very fancy no it's it's, Joan Didion yeah. Yeah, it's so pretentious, but it is the book. I even quoted her, you know, unsubtly in this. We tell ourselves stories in order to live is a Didion line. I feel like I am just trying to be Didion. It's not like I, you know, it's like every, all of the times where you're like, oh, that's writerly. That's me just being like, I'm doing an imitation of Joan Didion right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, she's she's best sentences. Yes. You know, of any writer in the last 50 years. Yes. Uh, tell us about your writing process. Tell us about your, okay. Tell us about your joke writing process. You're actually weirdly, I think, our 16th guest on Rough Draft, and we've never had a comedy writer before. Um, So let's do our best to suck the funny out of comedy as much as possible. And tell us, how does one write a joke? Knock, knock. (laughs) Sheer for oh yeah first of all yeah you do you do need to start with a knock you start knock. with knock knock you start with yeah. knock knock um, or a what do you get <laughs> um, <laughs> and, um, what's with the uh, <laughs> pillows on airplanes yeah that's got right, it that's uh-huh. right look and there's your mansion in the Hamptons or whatever from that um, the uh, I think um, tell us how it works there, for you. For me, I can I cannot speak specifically to comedy. I can speak only specifically to my experience, and it's by force. You just you it's just by blunt force. 
when I would write for Kimmel, we'd get an assignment every day. It was like writing for a daily newspaper. There would be a breakdown of about 10 topics, each with a Reuters or AP headline and then a paragraph summarizing underneath. You were responsible for like three to five jokes per topic and then overall three sketches. And I would sit down with like coffee and then later pregnant decaf coffee um, and just do it. And I think you get some alacrity after a while. Um, you know, toward in my later years at the show, I was able to sort of do it. Um, <laughs> I'm like a grizzled veteran now at 32. <laughs> but um, the uh, you get a hang of it. At the beginning, I would I would write from the moment I got home at the end of a show to going to bed and then waking up to the moment jokes mm. were due. Um, after a while, you, you, you learn it. But I think what I – Got what guides me in writing it to get specific is never punch down that like if I'm writing a joke, your angle has to be taking down somebody with more power than you. That's a mm -hmm. baseline. Um, I think the satisfaction from hearing that joke is so much greater and the like ethics involved in writing that joke are preserved. Um, so how do I how do I dismantle a system of power with words um, or just be like, you know, uh, Kardashian, honey boo boo, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, it's not all like holding a mirror <laughs> mirror to society. My <laughs> writing partner, Jeff, and I would often like hand each other a mirror to society award for just like the stupidest <laughs> joke. So yeah, you start with highfalutin lofty goals and you end up just like, you know, getting the joke on stage. Uh, question number three, if you weren't a writer, what would you be? I would be a floral designer. I would be a florist. <laughs> no, you would Yes, I would. I would do would flowers really? for weddings and parties. Wow. 100%. I do my friends' weddings. I did like my brother-in-law and sister-in-law's wedding. I would be, I would have a flower shop and I would have a wow. quiet life and I would look at flowers all day and make pretty arrangements for, hmm. for nightmare brides. I feel like I, I know you in a completely new way now. It's uh, my secret. It's my like breaking case of emergency plan. <laughs> All right. Question number four. What is the worst writing advice you have ever gotten? Oof, I feel like all writing advice advice is bad writing advice. Yeah, all writing it, it just you know yeah. to, like it's very I, subjective. It's totally subjective. What works for me does not work for anyone else. What works for anyone else does not work for me. But I would definitely say the worst writing advice um, is any advice your parent gives you. <laughs> that's right. That's, take that's a, a walk. Very good point. No, <laughs> don't take a walk. I need to take a walk. <laughs> That's good. Never listen to your parents when Never it comes to writing. Uh, I mean, you are a parent, so this last question may may be moot. But <laughs> yeah. what's the best writing advice that you can give to anyone except your own child? Yeah, thank you. Um, don't be afraid. <laughs> I'm going to actually say it in probably improper English, but don't be afraid to write bad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> to write badly, I guess. Don't just just get it on the page. Don't don't get precious. Don't don't worry if it's good. Just get it on the page. That's that's my that that is advice yeah. that um that I do that I live by because occasionally good things come out of it. It's very good advice. Oh, I, I the it. book is called Nobody Will Tell You This But Me. I love this book. Please pick uh, it up, everyone. Oh, look, we both have one. That's nice. Look, uh, cheers. Best nice. <laughs> uh, Cal, thank you so much for being a part of Rough Draft Live.
I know after that conversation, you love Best Calb the way that I love Best Calb. Thank you so much to Bess for joining us on the program. You can follow her socials at Bess Bell, B-E-S-S-B-E-L-L. This episode of Rough Draft with Reza Aslan was actually originally put out by the 92nd Street Y, which Bess refers to as the Jewish Mecca. Thank you, everyone, for joining us here on Rough Draft. We'll see you again next time. Rough Draft is a topic original series hosted by me, Reza Aslan. Executive produced by Reza Aslan, David Andrioni, Alfredo De Villa, and Safa Samizadeh Yazd. Executive producers for Topic are Ryan Chanitry, Anna Holmes, and Gina Konstantinakos, with production aid from Russell Sperberg. Our music and theme is by Jacob Snyder, sound by Sean Oakley, editing and mixing by Will Stanton, with additional editing by Blake V. You can follow Rough Draft on Twitter, at RoughDraftReza, on Facebook, at RoughDraftWithRezaAzen, or you can email us at RoughDraftPodcast at Topic.com. You can also follow me, Reza Aslan, at Reza Aslan. For transcripts and a list of full credits, go to topic.com slash rdpodcast. If you love this interview, be sure to check out our TV show, as well as Topic's original series and exclusive programming from around the world. Try it for free on the Apple TV app already on your favorite devices. You can watch Topic at home or on the go with offline viewing, and you can also share your subscription between up to six family members with family sharing. That's what I do. Go to apple.co slash topic to start your seven-day free trial now. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Rough Draft. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.